Welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with fellow creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm thrilled to have you with me. And I'm going to kick off this episode with some big news from my world. I have feel like I've talked about this or kind of teased it for a little while now. So I'm going to tell you that I got a book deal. I'm writing a book about my three favorite things, bread, wine, and cheese. They just might be three of your favorite things too. So I'm really excited to get to adventure through these worlds. And one thing I've learned already is how many parallels there are between all of these products. And really thematically or on a values level, there are some really similar questions and revolutions and movements happening in each of these three different Topics. There's also so much overlap in the very fact that bread, cheese, and wine go so darn well together. So it's kind of a web of things that I'm I'm honestly still figuring out, but that's a part of the fun. And that's what I'm getting so much joy out of nerding out about. So this brings me to today's podcast episode. We're going to look at two of those three products. Don't you worry, we're going to get a lot of podcasts in about bread too. But I talked with the founders of Natural Born Wine, Ollie and Sam. They began their wine importing company three years ago. It was a big career shift for both of them. They came from a background of writing. I love their story of how they got into it. It was unexpected and totally delightful. And we talked about what it means for a wine to be a natural wine. I met them because they sell at my local farmer's market, Victoria Park Farmer's Market, and learned so much from them just upon stumbling on them and love what they're doing. So I'm thrilled to have them on the pod. I also talk with Tom Calver of Westcombe Dairy. They make a beloved cheddar made in Somerset, England. It's the area that's home of cheddar cheese. So Tom and I talk about what it means to make cheese with raw milk and the concept of farming for flavor. So both of these places of interviews were uniquely awesome. So I talked with Ollie and Sam at an old horse stable converted to a bar in South London. So fun, so cool. And I talked with Tom in a cheddar maturation cave in Somerset. In this episode, I'll be going back and forth between my conversations with Ollie and Sam of Natural Born Wine and Tom Calver of Westcombe Dairy. By doing this kind of back and forth between these interviews, I hope to make a connection for everyone between these two seemingly very different products, cheese and wine, and the paralleled issues of values, taste, and quality that they really share. So enjoy the episode and come along with me, starting first and foremost, to the horse stable. I love the classical music happening. I'm with Ollie and Sam in South London. They are of natural born wine. Hi, Ollie Sam. Hello. <laughs> Where are we right now? Uh, we are in Camberwell, which is um, the best part of Southeast London, in between uh, Brixton, Peckham, East Dulwich. We're in our house, which we've turned into a bar. Which is the coolest part. Yes. So it's an old stable, right? Yeah. 
I think it's 200 years old. How old? It's a 200 year old uh, stable. Originally the stable for the house behind, um, which was, yeah, we've spent 12 years converting into, uh, into a home and now bar two days a month. We'll come right back to them. But now let's go hang out with cheesemaker Tom Calver. Hey guys, so I am in a cheddar maturation room right now. I am surrounded by so many wheels of cheddar and I'm going to talk to the man behind them all here at Westcombe Dairy in Somerset. Let's chat with Tom Calver. Oh, so this, this cellar here, we've got... Um... Uh, it's about 10 degrees Celsius and about between 87 and 92% humidity. Um, and we're able to control that and just keep it nice and constant. I mean, this is one area that I feel consistency is key. Um, we, we like inconsistency with the milk. Um, it's just bound to happen because it's raw milk. Um, incon- so therefore inconsistency and how you actually work with it, you know, having that kind of, um, again, intuition to say, right, okay, well today it feels like this and that's different to yesterday. So I'm going to, tweak this bit and do that you know that is a skill um in here um uh just allowing the cheese to do its own thing to actually just be at one temperature one humidity so it doesn't dry it out too much and it just kind of chills um then uh you know that's that's the key to it um and also having the the robot um, has been brilliant it really has we used to turn all these cheeses over by hand and I mean there's nothing artisan about turning a cheese over there really isn't it's back breaking work um, uh, respect for anybody who does it but um, but I mean yeah what, what we've what we've been able to do now is um, instead of like it certainly wasn't like a cost sa- like a, a labour saving exercise we've employed an extra person for it um, and now we're just able to taste the cheese more and just kind of zone in a bit more and so we're we went from tasting one cheese out of every batch to just check to see if it was okay now we're tasting every single cheddar um because you know i mean Again, being inspired by the guys in Europe, you know, like uh, the Conte affineurs and really good serious affineurs, they would never dream of like sending something out that they hadn't tasted. You know, any chef would never dream about sending out a dish that they haven't actually tasted. Yeah. And I think it's really important, you know, just to assume that it's going to be the same, even with the most consistent uh, consistency there's going to be slight variations mm-hmm. so I think that that's important to capture mm-hmm. yeah I think that it's the perfect um, combination of craftsmanship and technology because you you use raw milk and you are very evocative of the terroir but you are using technology to help you make a better product as opposed to a lesser quality product which is how it's often used absolutely i mean i i think (coughs) you're absolutely right i think technology has been used in the food industry to make everything more efficient and also more quantity and volume um and that's not where we're at we are um very much trying Trying to um, just make it better. Um, I think that the think of all these global issues that are going on at the moment. I think that like the whole kind of like veganism and vegetarianism and all that kind of stuff is a reactionary thing about just the lack of transparency in our food culture. Um, you know, people are being sold essentially just these like. 
lies is a really harsh term, but it kind of is, you yeah. know, if you kind or of at see... least like misleading. It is facts. a bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you see all these kind of beautiful pictures on a packet and then you dig down and actually look at the reality, it, it's so far from it. Mm. So that and I think you can taste it. This brings up a great point, because being able to taste and feel in your body the difference between these food products and the more industrialized versions of them in which quality suffers, uh, it's a really interesting concept. And it's a big reason of how Ollie and Sam got into the wine business. They were both writers, and they still are, so I asked them why they took this tangential leap into wine. You have gone down one career path, and now you two together are natural-born wine. So tell me how that, how did that come about? Um, so, uh, well, in my early 20s, I thought I wanted to be a winemaker, and um, I went to New Zealand and um, was living in some eco-villages and doing, trying to find uh, an unpaid kind of woofing situation where I could learn viticulture um, and I found this really cool small vineyard on Waikiki Island um, and got to, he'd never had anyone there and I got to be really hands on but I got really quickly put off the whole winemaking thing because it wasn't organic, um, it certainly wasn't natural. So what what turned you off about it for people who have never been like seen viticulture at all, why would a non-organic place turn you off? I remember being in the vineyard one day, like, plucking leaves on my own, and the winemaker ran out and said that we needed to get inside quickly because the neighbouring vineyard had sprayed, and if it gets on you, it's super toxic, and I, it never occurred to me that you could cover an, a fruit or a vegetable in something that if it then got on your own skin and got on you, was like you'd have an allergic reaction, or it would be... Um, detrimental to your health so I that was alarming and then I was kind of I loved the viticulture side but then when I was interested in the winemaking side like what happens in the in the cellar I was sort of really shocked at how much like a laboratory it was and how many chemicals there were and different kind of additives and flavorings and dyes and things basically to fix what was essentially stuff that had gone wrong in the vineyard and uh it's just all the romance just drained out of me and i was like this is not a walk in the clouds or whatever that keanu reads (laughs) it is not sexy having pesticides all over your skin right and uh and I was drinking a lot and testing, you know, the wines every day. I was just not feeling that great in my body and just, I kind of, it really just sort of put me off wine for quite a long time. Um, and then like touring to the south, I mean, New Zealand's a beautiful place and they make some amazing wines, but um, I, I, that was the first time I'd really toured vineyards and I was shocked at how like so, a lot of them, especially the Sauvignon Blanc um, vineyards are like factories. Um, so anyway, I, I decided I don't want to become my winemaker. I'm going to go back to journalism, and um, then I came back here and I got I landed a very lucky job reviewing restaurants in London, um, lots of very expensive high-end restaurants with sommeliers, and I'd never ever spoken to a sommelier in my life. I mean, every time I would dine out and stuff, 
I tend to just order the stuff that I was familiar with. I look for the grapes that I know, sure. the regions that I know. Yeah. And then this was an opportunity to kind of get curious and try, you know, Austrian wines and different things that I'd never had. But I felt like pretty confident in Australasian wines and, and uh, some of Europe. But like we got to very quickly just learn quite a lot more. And that that was... That experience was the first time we heard the word biodynamic. Um, I'd heard of organic wine. I didn't know what biodynamic wine was. And then talking to sommeliers and drinking so much of it and, and noticing a pattern in how we were feeling and how it was tasting. And suddenly these wines just tasted so much more alive. Um, from there, we went to Italy. and then I'm going to pause you right there because before you get too much further, I love how you talked about your it was your opportunity to get curious and to explore. So, Ali, what was your opportunity to get curious? And was it kind of through Sam? Were you guys already together at that point and she got into it and you're like, oh, yeah, this is actually really cool? Well, definitely this so this, this experience of going to all these amazing restaurants and, 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 and getting the chance to drink wines from incredible wine lists. Wait, so you got to be her plus one? Sometimes, not always. <laughs> but uh, a lot of the time did did accelerate, I guess, the um, the kind of professionalization of, of, uh, of the intrigue or, or like um, the interest. But, but simultaneously, uh, and it was at the same time as um, we were going to these restaurants, we... We've always spent a lot of time in Paris. I grew up in Paris, Sam used to live there. And so we were going to quite a lot of um, natural wine bars in Paris. Um, because Paris's natural wine scene is a few steps ahead of the UK, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was already fairly kind of, yeah, well, most districts in Paris had their own natural wine bar five, six, seven years ago when we first started going. And so we were trying on natural wine, but without really knowing necessarily what it was particularly. And then through the restaurants kind of understanding the biodynamics and, and natural wines and uh, starting to get a better understand, understanding of the kind of stratification and the difference between between the many forms of sort of natural wines. Um, yeah. So, so this is in Paris, what you're explaining. that You used to live there and you also, both of you have lived there at some point. But Sam, you were just starting to talk about Italy. So when did that pivot happen to focus on Italy with the natural wines? Um, we randomly just decided to go to Florence, I think. We had been tasting a lot of Italian wines and loving them and were curious about biodynamics. And then we went to Florence um, and we went into this cafe um, in this really beautiful street and we... We really wanted to go to a vineyard, but we didn't want to do the touristy thing. We wanted to like have an authentic experience. So we just asked someone, didn't we? We said, this, do you know any biodynamic producers? And he said, yes, actually, I know that guy who makes that wine there. And it was... <laughs> and he picked up the phone straight away. So literally, and literally by, the, by the end of the sentence almost, we, were, we already had a meeting with Andrea uh, just outside Florence the next day. And, uh, and, and yeah, we turned up at this... Actually, it was really difficult to get to. Even though it was 20 minutes, it was a train strike, so we had to get, like, two different buses and uh, a coach and ended up, like... It was only 20 minutes away, but it took, like, two and a half hours in this kind of random uh, village, like, 25 minutes outside Florence, being picked up by this 
this guy with this huge beard. He turned up in this tiny little blue car, <laughs> and uh, this was uh, this was Andrea, the guy who essentially uh, started our business, really, because he. Uh, as soon as we met him at the station, within like 25 minutes, we were making biodynamic manure, and he was showing us everything about biodynamics and how it was made, and walking through the biodynamic vineyard, and like he told us to close our eyes and. Um, and like, listen, you know, because a biodynamic vineyard, a healthy vineyard is sounds uh, kind of alive. And uh, all the while being walked around with this giant polar bear of a dog with him, <laughs> who I was pretty sure didn't like me very much. Uh, but uh, was like this, and it was just this kind of magical experience of properly getting an understanding of what biodynamics was in practice. Um, and then... And in a way as well though because as we were going around he was sort of showing us this is a part of the vineyard that he'd had to sell off um, and then this is a part of this huge estate that he was. they were now turning into guest accommodation and it was sort of transpiring that they um, you know they needed the money basically to kind of keep because it's expensive to farm in that way to make wine in that way and um, this was all before we got to taste the wine and we were like madly in love with him already and and then he took us into this little like stone shed and uh, he poured these wines and honestly I mean they were just so amazing absolutely incredible and he had there was no like hard sell he was just was happy to meet us and and you and I were already talking before we'd even left like we need to we weren't using the words wine importers we were just like we need to get these wines to the UK for other people to drink and that's where the business started basically okay we wanted to bring Andrea's wines to the UK but Andrea had a fairly loose um sort of volition to uh, fill in his paperwork <laughs> so so he didn't and we couldn't uh, okay but so before we get into the business like really taking off we've talked around biodynamic natural wines quite a bit but let's like straight up can can we define natural wine or is or is it still kind of an undefinable thing um so the, so people have tried to define it like vin, vin nature in um in italy has defined kind of uh, a kind of basic um standard for for natural winemaking but there are i think that there is no absolute um but our we have kind of created our own, which is more than organic. So we consider wines um, natural if, if they are doing more than the kind of basic uh, principles of like an eco-cert organic cert, you know, certification. Um, so they're, they're trying to be sustainable. They're using little, no additives at all, very little or no sulfur. Um, and yeah, biodynamic principles, even if not certified biodynamic. Here, Ollie brings up an interesting idea. Even if a winery isn't certified biodynamic, they could still follow biodynamic principles. And Tom Calver of Westcombe Dairy talks about how they're not certified organic, but then he goes on to talk about all the considerations he has around his farm and dairy production. I mean, it seems like they should be organic, right? It's fascinating that sometimes these labels aren't quite so cut and dry. Here, Tom talks a bit about that and the revolution of microbes. We're not organic, um, uh, but we are trying to farm better. So we're tr farming for flavour and quality. So that means diversification in our grasslands. It means not 
messing around with the soil very much you know it means trying to grade our worms and trying to understand the population of them and trying to like get into what the what the hell the microbiome is going on in the soil and trying to actually bring that through so that can actually go into the um into the feed and then go into the milk it's also understanding the the um you know we i feel like we're in a revolution as well of like uh, microbes and actually you kind of think a bit more and like all these decisions that have that farmers have been making or have been advised to make have been based on either volume or quality and what the hell i mean i hate the term quality in a way actually when it comes to milk like what what is quality what does it look like for me it's totally different to somebody else somebody who wants to produce milk which will sit on a supermarket shelf for about you know two to three weeks then that's totally different quality to what i want you know i'm thinking about um you know flavor and you know milk that wants to turn itself into cheese you know you've got to think well actually this has got to is so in in it in in its own right it's got to be full of bacteria and good ones and really healthy ones and ones that are interesting and so actually how do you impart that you know you don't necessarily sterilize every single udder you can actually inoculate it or you can kind of like you look at the bedding you know what what are they being bedded down on is it sand that's inert that's good for mastitis but actually it's not very good for quality of milk so we're um, looking at putting a bit of like straw in there which has got um, you know, lactobacillus, natural lactobacillus culture in there. So we can almost inoculate the other to actually bring that through into the milk and all that kind of stuff. There are so many elements, like so many moving parts in cheesemaking because it is an agricultural product, which a lot of people don't think of, I think. So like there's all of the stuff on the back end, the front end, all parts. What, what does it mean to you to be a cheddar maker in the country where cheddar was born? Do you know what? It's... it's uh, uh, this is a good question. I feel like it's a it's it's an honour first of all, but. Um uh, I, I chatted to Matteo Kilo um, uh, a, a few years back and he was kind of explaining about because like the American like cheese industry is booming isn't it you know it's going through this amazing phase and uh, you know the Americans are churning out some incredible cheeses and one of the things that I think is interesting about it is that they don't necessarily have these kind of um, the restrictions of tradition um, so sometimes that can be a really good thing and I think that you know our heritage and what we do that is like key and mega it's it's brilliant um, but actually one of the things that um that i found is like it like with farming and when there's been this whole kind of like handing down of industry the the inquisitive mind isn't is, is kind of sometimes like suppressed so you kind of say so dad why did we do why do we do that oh because we've always done it your grandfather's done it and that's the way we do it you know don't bloody ask any questions do you remember the last time that you ate like a cheddar off the grocery store shelf? And do you even consider that like a real Definitely. cheese? Um, I think absolutely, 100%. I'm not elitist. I ate cheddar off the supermarket shelf, uh, I don't know, two weeks ago. Um, I think, you know, there's a, like, cheddar's a big market, you know, and a lot of people, and, and also, like, yeah, I... I <laughs> I, it, it, it annoys me when people kind of say about our cheese, oh, well, it's too good for cooking and stuff like that. You know, no, of course it's not. If you want to make something absolutely delicious, you just use it. You know, it's, it's a really, it's, it's the difference between like a, um, I don't know, like a like your standard kind of uh, 
thing that uh, and then and then something just of higher quality yeah. uh, that's what we're trying to go for and i yeah i what yeah people have got to eat haven't they so like you know i'm not i don't know it's 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 a it's a complicated uh, it's a complicated question I no think. i i like your answer though it sounds like there there's a place for it it's not the same it's not it's not the same as the, the product that you make but there's a place for the stuff that you find on the grocery store shelf There are so many things at play here. Taste, values, price point, and therefore accessibility. And when I was talking about all these things with Ollie in relation to wine, he brought up the interesting facet of risk. Why, I mean, do you think it it tastes better in addition to on a value level being something you admire? Yeah, so for us, I mean, I think anything of true value uh, involves uh, an element of risk. Um, I think that's whether it's a a novel or a bottle of wine. Um, That's something which is truly individual and kind of unique. Um, is 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 created with with risk. It's, it's not. It's you know a conventional bottle of bottle of conventional wine and a bottle of natural wine. They're they're trying to create something very very different. The conventional wine is trying to create something which, more in most cases, will be palatable to the kind of generic palate. You know, that's something that's on a mass produced industrial scale that they can make huge numbers of that aren't going to offend anyone. Whereas the, the you know the bottle of natural wine is something completely different. It's 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 something which is an expression of place and the people who made it i love what you're saying about risk that is beautiful and i think it it has so many parallels right beyond the wine world and just like you were saying novels and and i think the list goes on in terms of natural wine like do you think it's accessible enough to become more than a trend do you think that this is the way the wine industry is going full stop I mean, I think I think the aim has to be that there are enough producers making um, enough small production wines that ultimately, I guess, the, the cost comes down a little bit, so that they're because they are quite, you know, they only they account for less than five percent of the global uh, production, so they they are in of itself, you know, a very niche product. But if we can, I do sort of consider a glass of natural wine in some ways to be an act of revolution. You are saying that you don't want to be part of a kind of consumerist, hyper-capitalist culture, which is all about uh, creating uh, the most amount of um, something at the smallest price with the highest margin, uh, or not even not the highest margin, just with a view to having... Um, volume sales uh, which has no um, kind of care or attention to to the environment to that individual place to um, the workforce to the land to the soil so um, so if you can if we can through through what, what through drinking natural wine, through being interested in it, through supporting these winemakers, enable more and more of a percentage of that kind of territory to be taken over by small producers making these wines, and that's got to be a good thing. So while we were talking about natural wine and taste, I had to ask them about the sometimes dominating opinion that natural wines are funky in not a good way because they aren't as consistent as conventional wine, that they are more often than not flawed beyond forgiveness. There is some bad, some bad wine. There's also a lot of, there's a lot of natural wine that's um, faulty and there's a lot of people out there who might be trying to suggest that those faults are flavours and they're, they're faults. 
I think it's okay to like Marissa Ross makes this point better than me but it's alright for wines to have flaws but when flaws spill over into like it's just not tasting very nice but but we'll forgive it because it's a natural wine I mean it's but then you know they really are alive because I've tasted wines before not uh, you know from all kinds of different countries and different methods of natural winemaking and some of them are like undrink they've, they've all got personality some are undrinkable for like 10 minutes and then they're amazing others you have to drink within half an hour that is again why you kind of need to know the story because if you don't know how to drink them like you just give up on them you'd be like you know if you don't know that that mousiness is gonna go away then you would probably tip it down the sink yeah. but i like it real real talk real talk with sam so so ollie i'm gonna throw it to you then for what has been um the biggest challenge of starting this business i mean you're a writer both of you are writers and you know you started a business uh well yeah the biggest challenge has been probably a physical one (laughs) wine is really heavy um and because of the way we wanted to do this which is you know we we didn't really want to sell online we do and we deliver on a wednesday and friday but uh no that we wanted to do farmers markets because we wanted to have that conversation so so uh in order for us to kind of do the business how we wanted to do it which is to meet people, talk about natural wine, kind of travel to different places, actually bring the wine with us. It has been really difficult physically. <laughs> and I've lost about three stone, I think, uh, <laughs> just in wine carrying. Um, that has been really difficult. And also there is a lot of um, doubt and reticence to kind of believe or fully. There's a lot of pressure um, from the con- conventional wine industry, I think. And there's lots of people who kind of think that um, there's nothing wrong with adding chemical- lots and lots of chemicals, which, you know, which is fair enough. But I think it goes to show that it's more than a business, it is a movement, right? And so when you're fighting against something bigger, um, yeah, but that it's an interesting adventure that you guys are on for sure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And where can people find Natural Born Wine? Online, naturalbornwine.com, uh, on Instagram, on social media. And we're at different farmers markets every week. I wouldn't even say them now because they're always changing. But well, Victoria Park Market Victoria every, Park. Sun- every Sunday. Definitely every Sunday. Um, and check our website for where the other places. Yeah. Cool. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Ollie and Sam, and thanks to Tom Calver. You can follow Westcombe Dairy at Westcombe Dairy on Instagram. And I'll wrap up this episode with an interesting tip about ricotta cheese, which Westcombe Dairy makes using the whey, the byproduct of cheddar making. How is ricotta made? So ricotta in Italian means recooked. So for me, you have to use whey. You've got to have made something first. So some people make ricotta with like whole milk. That ain't ricotta, you know. You haven't recooked, you haven't cooked it first. So, um, and also you'll get a, like a different kind of like texture to it. It becomes quite sandy. Yeah. And we don't want a sandy ricotta, now do we? <laughs> all right, guys, that's all for this week. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't yet, so every new episode shows up in your feed. Rate it, review it, all that fun stuff. Sign up to my e 
newsletter if you haven't already. All that and much more information is in the show description. And as always, don't forget to keep it quirky. See you all back here soon. Bye. Thank you.